0: Pray with me this morning. Spirit, we do give you praise. Uh, We're so grateful that your whisper divine uh, indeed uh, awakens our heart. Uh, Spirit, when you come and you speak the gospel, and when you speak the truth of who Jesus is, of his life and death and resurrection on our behalf, in his free grace uh, that he offers, you awaken our hearts and you change us. You uh, cause us to be born again and you awaken that which uh, is set in our hearts to believe in you, Father, and to believe in the gospel. Uh, Father, we're grateful for your goodness. Uh, You indeed are good uh, to us in the midst of trial and in the midst of blessing, uh, in the midst of uh, that which is uh, delightful and and in the midst of that which is hard. Um, You are good and you don't change. We're so grateful for that. Father, I pray now uh, that you would uh, just find our worship acceptable. Father, that the s- songs that we've sung from our lips would be from our hearts and that it, would be a well, uh, it would just be well-pleasing to you. It would be a sweet-smelling aroma and that the praise of your people would go forth and our hearts would be encouraged and that you would be glorified uh, by that. Father, we come now and we want to offer all of ourselves to you. Uh, We want to offer our attention. uh, We want to offer our minds. We want to offer our hearts. We want to offer listening ears. And uh, we want to offer um, all of our, uh, our life and even that which is... Uh, In our pocketbooks and so father I pray uh, as we uh, give of our offering uh, to you father We wouldn't do it uh, because we have to Uh, we wouldn't do it out of habit Uh, father. We would do it generously uh, joyfully uh, knowing that what you do in your church and beyond your church um, is uh, affects eternity and we want to make wise investments, with the, the finances that you've given us. And so I pray that uh, this time of offering would be well-pleasing to you. Father, I pray that the time in your word uh, would be well-pleasing to you. And that, Spirit, you would come, uh, you would open up our hearts and our minds to your word, and that you would find us to be soft towards it. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You guys make a Guys, I think I saw the kids leave, and so, did Kim go out that way? Okay. Kim is graciously taking Kids Church for us, so kids, if you want to go to Kids Church, go ahead and head that way, and uh, for the rest of us who uh, aren't going to Kids Church, uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of James. We have been in the midst of a series called How-To's for the Christian Life, and we have been looking at the very practical, uh, oftentimes the very in-your-face book of James, and so we will be in chapter 4 this morning, and so it's always good to bring your Bible uh, with you if you have it. Uh, James chapter 4 is where we are going to begin. Uh, Chapter 4, starting around verse 11. Uh, We're going to go ahead and read uh, the text, and so follow along uh, in your Bibles. If you don't have your Bibles, the text will be on the screen. Uh, We're going to read the text this morning, and we're going to jump right into how to prevail over pride. Uh, In this series... How to's for the Christian life and James continues on a very similar track to what he has been for the past couple of weeks And this week he will be addressing very clearly I hope uh, the issue of pride Chapter 4 starting in verse 11 James says this Do not speak evil against one another brothers The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. It is sin. A reading of the Word of God. One of the most distasteful, one of the most unattractive traits that I think we see in ourselves and that we see in other people is the character trait of pride it's unattractive it's distasteful when we meet a proud person I think we are automatically just turned off and we can see most oftentimes the pride seeping out through mostly their mouths. Uh, I want to share a quick story. Gerald Gardner is an author, and in his book, All the President's Wits, tells a story about Ronald Reagan, and I'd like to read this story to you. Uh, he says this, Ronald Reagan, uh, recalling on occasion when he was governor of California, he had made a speech in Mexico City, and uh, President Reagan said this, After I had finished speaking, I sat down to a rather unenthusiastic applause. And I was a little embarrassed. The speaker who followed me spoke in Spanish, which, of course, I didn't understand. And he was being applauded about every sentence after every paragraph. And so to hide my embarrassment, I started clapping before everyone else would. And I clapped longer than anyone else until the ambassador to the U.S. leaned over and whispered in my ear, I wouldn't do that if I were you. He's interpreting your speech. (laughs) Get it? You know, there's just something about a proud person who likes to applaud their own speech. There's something about pride that just rubs us the wrong way. One unknown author says this of pride, and I think he's right on on the money. Pride is the only disease that makes everyone else sick but the one who has it. You know, James this morning is going to talk about pride. If you recall, and we've taken two weeks to go through ten verses, which is a little bit slower than normal. Uh, the past couple of weeks, James has been tackling the issue of conflict. Uh, he's talked about conflicts in the church, and he's essentially said that our pride, our selfishness, is usually, almost always, the source of conflict. He then goes on to say that our selfishness, our sinful selfishness, living for our own pleasures, also causes conflict. conflict. Conflict with God, and we make ourselves an enemy of God. And then last week we talked about our recipe for repentance. James essentially says if you find yourself at odds with other people, if you come to realize you're at odds with God, then essentially you need to repent. And if you recall, in verses 6 through 10, he used the word humility two times. In fact, we went through, if you recall, a seven ingredient recipe for humility. And To begin that recipe and to end that recipe, James talked about what I would consider the key ingredient. The key ingredient for repentance... Is humility, And so James has talked about humility. In fact, he ends verse 10 by saying, uh, saying this, if I can find it in my text. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And so James has been talking about humility in our relationship with God. What does it look like for us to humble ourselves in repentance before God? Now, James isn't going to let go of this idea of humility. He's going to talk about humility. He's going to talk about the opposite of humility, which is pride. And he's going to talk about humility and pride in a couple other areas in our life. First of all... As we relate to other people, especially as we relate to other Christians, he's going to answer the question, what does it look like for us to have humility? Conversely, how should we prevail over prideful pronouncements? That's the first main section of our sermon. How do we prevail over prideful pronouncements in relationship to other Christians? He's then going to talk about another area of humility, and that is in our relationship to the future, Specifically, in our planning, we all plan. I think some of us are ultra planners, and some of us are more go with the flow kind of people. But we all live our life in such a way that we have plans. We view the future in a certain way. And James, secondly, is going to tell us how we can prevail over prideful planning. And so, the first section, verses eleven and twelve, how do we prevail over prideful? I'm calling them prideful pronouncements. Essentially what James is going to say is Don't judge your brother That's essentially what he's going to be talking about And so what we're going to find in each of these sections Is uh, three tools, if you will Uh, James has been giving us some practical tools For the tool belt of our Christian life How do we prevail in our relationship with other Christians uh, Over speaking prideful thoughts Over judging them Over speaking evil and negative against them We're going to see three things And so if you have a notebook, which we have available back in the back to take notes, the first thing we see is found in verse 11. The first tool that James is going to give us is he essentially says, don't judge other believers. The first tool to prevail over prideful pronouncements is simply this. Don't judge them. Don't judge them. Notice what he says in the first half of verse 11. Do not speak evil. It's a key word here. He's going to repeat it later. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. And so he begins with this simple command, don't speak evil. Your translation may say, don't speak against them. Your uh, translation, if it's NIV, may say, don't slander them. But then notice what he does. He connects this speaking evil, this speaking negatively, this slanderous speech. He connects that with judging. Notice what he says. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother. And so James essentially says the first tool, don't judge other Christians. This word, speak against, I've given you some other translations. It can mean different things depending upon the context. And so it has a broader meaning, and then it has a more narrow meaning. The broader meaning essentially is this. It means to to talk bad or to talk disparagingly about someone. That's the broader context, whether you're speaking that which is true or whether you're speaking that which is false. You are speaking negatively about them. You are running them down with your words. That's the broader meaning. The more narrow meaning could be the idea of slander. When we slander someone, we're not just talking bad about them. We're making stuff up about them. We're taking gossip that we've heard, and it may be true and it may not be true, and we are disparaging their character. We're defaming their character. And so that's the more narrow definition, is that we are speaking that which may not necessarily be completely true against a fellow Believer. Pastor Brian Bell, I think, um, summarizes this command really succinctly. He says this, this command, this command forbids any speech, notice this, whether true or false, which runs down. Another person. A key element that I left out here that's key to this idea of not speaking against one another, of not judging our brothers, is that every time when this word is used, it is speaking about someone, about a fellow Christian in the context of James, not in the presence of that person. In other words, you're not talking to them about their sin. You're not talking to them about their character defects. You're not talking to them about how they have wronged you. You're talking to someone else. And that's a key definition. And so what James essentially says is, don't judge your brother. He connects this kind of talk, this kind of negative speak, when we talk and we run down another Christian, and they're not in our midst. It's not enough that we're speaking evil against them. But James points out that when we do that, When I talk about, and I don't do this, hopefully, you or you or you or you and you're not there, and I'm running you down, I'm talking about how bad you are, what James essentially says is not only am I speaking evil or slandering you, I am judging you. I'm sitting on the throne, I'm taking the gavel of judgment, and I am pronouncing you guilty. Notice what he says. Don't speak against one another. The one who speaks against a brother or judges him. And so he's calling it judgment because essentially what we're doing is we're taking our opinion and we're taking uh, the place of God and we are giving a pronouncement on the worth or the value of that person. That's what a judge does. They determine right or wrong. They say valuable or invaluable. And so James has a very clear, very strong word to this church and to the churches 2,000 plus years ago. It's a simple command, isn't it? And yet it's so very hard to do. As I have thought through this in my own life, and I try to do this each, each week, I try to evaluate and say, am I doing this? Am I, not, am I speaking something that I'm not trying to live out? And as I thought about it, I found myself thinking, well, that's really not... Am I doing that? Well, maybe. Am I, am I really going against what... Well, and we have to evaluate. And we really have to say... James really means what he means. Anytime we talk bad about another Christian, and they're not there, and our intent is to speak evil or or, uh, make their character less, we're judging them. Very simply, we're judging them. And so I've summarized it this way. Instead of talking to them about their sin, you're talking to others about their sin. Instead of trying to help them, you're trying to hurt them. Instead of trying to restore them, like Paul says in Galatians 6, you're trying to ruin them. Instead of trying to preserve their reputation, you, my friends, and I are trying to destroy it. And so, applicationally speaking, we have to take a hard look at our lives. I want you to do that. I want us to do that this morning and take a hard look at how we speak about other Christians in this congregation or in other congregations here or anywhere else in the world, and we have to ask, are we doing this? Are we talking to others about their faults? What is our motives? Are we building them up or are we tearing them down? Are we talking to them or are we talking about them? Is our intent to hurt them or to help them? Do we seek to, to mend their reputation or to rip it apart? And So, what about you? How are you doing here? How am I doing here? I want you to think through how you speak about your fellow believers in Christ here and elsewhere. And ask yourself, ask myself, do we meet... The litmus test. First of all, he says, don't judge other believers. Secondly, he says, don't put yourself over God's word. This is the second tool, if you will. Not only do we not judge others, but we don't put ourselves over and above God's word. Notice the second part of verse B. Uh, Verse 11, excuse me. Uh, The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother. Notice what he says. Speaks evil against the law and judges the law. And so if we speak evil against our brother, if we judge our brother or sister in Christ, we are then making a pronouncement, we are speaking evil, we are judging God's law. It says, "or judges his brother." If you judge, if you judge the law, notice what he says. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And so here's what James is essentially saying. When we take Our brother and sister and we make a pronouncement against them when we speak evil against them What he is saying is we are putting ourselves on the level or maybe even on a level above God's word the law here um, Some people think uh, differently about what this means, but I think when he says the law he's talking about God's word generally what does God's word have to say about our relationship with others? When you look at the Old Testament, several commands. Don't slander. Don't speak evil. Don't get false reports. When you look at the teaching of Jesus, Matthew 7, don't judge lest you be judged. The whole eye, speck, dust particle thing, right? Jesus talks about judging. We see in the New Testament, Peter, Paul, both echo the whole teaching of Scripture on this issue. And this is what I think... James is talking about he's saying you you know this he, he he alludes to this later in verse 17 he says whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it to him it's sin and the point that he's making is Christians you know what you're supposed to do you're just not doing it you know God's law regarding how you're to speak about other people you're just Disregarding it. And that's what James is saying. You judge the law. You are judging it in the sense that you look at what God says about how you're to speak and how I'm to speak about other Christians, and I'm saying, I don't care. (laughs) I don't care. I am my own authority, and we judge the law. We put ourselves over the law. You could say that we, instead of following the rules, if you will, we make up our own rules. Now, I don't know uh, if you have these kind of memories or if you know someone like this, or maybe you are that person. Um, Growing up, I used to play uh, with a good buddy of mine. He was a year older than me, and uh, I was shy and somewhat naive, and he was not shy, very bold, and very tricky. (laughs) And so we would play games together, and one of our favorite games to play growing up was Monopoly. Monopoly Lovers? Yeah, okay, you can be honest. Yeah, I Uh, I, I enjoyed Monopoly growing up. I guess before I actually had money, I liked the thought that I had money, you know, (laughs) even though it was fake. Regardless, we would play Monopoly together. And I came to realize after, could have been years of playing with this kid, that he was cheating me. Like, we would play, and we would establish ground rules. You know the rules for Monopoly. Do not pass go, do not collect 200 bucks, whatever. You know, there are rules about how you play Monopoly. And so we'd lay out the rules, and we'd begin to play. And eventually, I came to realize that in the middle of the game, he would change the rules on me. You ever been like that? You ever played a game with someone like that, maybe as a kid, or hopefully not as an adult, <laughs> you know? Um, they have change the rules on you. And so he'd be like, well... This is really how you buy property. And he would always change the rules to benefit who? Himself, of course, never me. And so I would always lose because he would take the given rules of the game and he would set himself up over the rules. And this is what James is saying. He's saying when you judge your brother, you're putting yourself over God's word, because you know what you're supposed to do and you disregard it and you change the rules. So he says, don't judge your brother. Secondly, he says, don't put yourself over God's word. Third, he very simply says this in verse 12. Don't play God. The third tool that he wants us to put in our tool belt is don't play God. Verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Dr. Tom Constable in his commentary says this. Criticizing our equals is a common sport. Criticizing our equals is a common sport, but it is inappropriate for mere mortals. And that's what James is saying. Not only do we disregard God's law when we judge other people, but essentially... We're playing God. We are putting ourselves in the role of judge, and only God can do that. Notice what He says. He says there's only one lawgiver. That is God writes the laws. He makes the rules. He gives the commands. There's only one, and it's Him. Not only is there only one lawgiver, but the one who makes the laws, the one who creates the laws, then has the right to enforce the laws. Notice what He says. Not only one lawgiver, but there's one. Judge. So you could say, if you speak governmentally, that he is both the legislative branch, he makes the laws, and he is the judicial branch. He enforces the laws, and he alone, that's the point, he alone can do that. Notice, <coughs> James asks us a stinging question. But who are you? But who are you to judge your Neighbor, And the way he wants us to answer that is We are no one One translation says What right do you have to judge your brother? And the answer James is hammering home is None We don't have the right Only God has the right And so applicationally speaking We have to ask ourselves this question I've been asking myself this question uh, A good portion of the week And I hopefully will continue to do that Am I putting myself up and over and against God's law? Am I taking that which I know to be true and saying, I don't care. I'm going to do what I want and I'm going to say what I want and I'm going to say it to whomever I want about whatever I want. I think we can take these kind of pronouncements, don't speak evil against one another, don't judge, and we can just kind of easily say, oh, that doesn't apply to me. I don't do that. I don't do that. I know I don't do that. And we don't even consider the very real possibility that yes, we do when we tell half lies. We don't lie, but we tell half lies about someone in the church, someone in your small group, someone you sit by. And we tend to think, oh, I'm not, I'm not slandering them. I'm telling a half truth. I'm not slandering. Yes, you are. <laughs> and yes, I am. When we share with someone in our family about, oh, that deacon's wife or that deacon or this or that, and we're speaking ill against them, seeking to defame them, we're not talking to them. Maybe it's a Sunday school teacher. Maybe it's someone you work with. Whoever. And we tend to think, oh, I'm not, I'm not gossiping. Yes, you are. <laughs> yes, you are. What about that new family who's joined the church? When you talk about uh, them with your husband and you make the comment, you know, man, where do they live? What street is that? Oh, it's that street. And oh, man, you know, you know about that house. It's just not, I don't know. It's just not Cistna Park standard. And you speak against them. You are speaking evil. <laughs> I am speaking evil. Do not put yourself over and above I don't want to put myself over and above God's Word and easily dismiss this and say, Oh, I'm okay. I don't do this. Because I guarantee if you start to think about it like I've been thinking about it this week, you'll probably find out that you do sometimes. That you do sometimes. So James in verses 11 and 12, he has talked about how we relate to other people. He has said how to prevail over prideful pronouncements. And he's given us three tools how to do that. He then moves on and he continues his thought on humility. He said, this is what humility looks like. In our relationship with other Christians But what does it look like in our relationship With the future Uh, What does it look like in in our relationship With how we view life Specifically, what does it look like In our relationship to how We plan and think About the future He goes on to tell us, the second half of our sermon here How to prevail over what I call Prideful planning Prideful planning, verses 13-16 through Um, How many of you This probably just happens to me, I'm sure. You make plans, and you have ideas about what's going to happen. Maybe it's a weekend getaway. Maybe it's something at work. Maybe it's something in your family. And you make plans for the future, and you're anticipating those plans, and you're looking forward to them, and something happens, and your plans just go crumbling down. Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me a lot, actually, because I like to plan. Um... There was a weekend, and maybe you recall this. It was several months ago. Shelly and I were planning a trip to Shelly's sister's house uh, there in Arkansas. And we were planning on taking a Sunday to do it. We were taking the quarter Sunday. I had Charlie coming in. He was going to fill in for me. Everything was good. And our master scheme, because I'm sure we've heard from some of you that this works. uh, What we decided to do was leave very early in the morning. Asher was about... I don't know, six to eight months. And so we thought, we're going to get up really early. So we got up at like three, out the door at 3.30, and we thought, hey, he's going to go right back to bed. We're going to make a great time. We're going to get there without having to stop once, right? Those were my plans. Those was, that's what we wanted. And so we looked at the future and we said, this is how it's going to be. And lo and behold, we get out of bed, make a long story short, he's in the car seat for an hour, And he has not fallen asleep. He's wailing. He's tired. And we get to about Savoy, you know, the airport exit. And we're like... This is not right. We're going home. And so we turn around. We drive back home for an hour. He cries the whole time there. And we get him back in bed. We are zonked out. We go back to bed. And we get a call about 8, 8.30. And it's Shelly's sister. And she says, have you guys left yet? And we say, well, yes, we tried to. Blah, blah, blah. We explain the whole thing. She said, well, good. That may be good because both of the kids woke up sick. And Garrett has had this. And we think it's strep. <laughs> and so lo and behold... You know, God was gracious to us, and it worked out. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever had plans, and it just didn't work out? Well, James addresses this, and the first tool that he gives us over prideful planning is is found in verse 13 and 14. Let's read that together. James says, "'Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go uh, into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit.'" In verse 14 Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring The first tool that he gives us here For prevailing over prideful planning Is don't presume Do not presume You could say don't be presumptuous What's the I mean think about this If we can go back to verse 13 for a moment What's the problem here I mean you read this kind of statement And he is speaking against these prideful planners I mean what's really the issue here Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town And so he's saying we're going to go here We're going to go there you know, And we're going to make a profit Like, What's the big deal And I, he's, he tells us in verse 14 But I want to read it in a way That maybe will bring it out Come now you who say Today or tomorrow we will Okay you get it We will And then he Skip ahead to verse 14 What does he say then Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. The point is this. They're being presumptuous. They're being presumptuous. They are presuming a lot of things here. First of all, he presumes today or tomorrow. What's the presumption there? That you will actually be alive tomorrow. That's presumptuous. Do you know that? It's presumptuous for me to think that tomorrow I'm going to get up and go to work. It's presumptuous. I don't know that. I'm not guaranteed that. It's presumptuous to think that we're going to go to such a town. It's presumptuous for us to think at some point we will certainly be at this geographical area. Most likely it'll happen, but it's presumptuous. And then notice what he says. We're going to trade and make a profit. They're presuming that the business that they're going to do will actually be profitable. It's presumptuous. Uh, David, um, David uh, a speaker by the last name of David, uh, says this. What bothers James is simply the presumption that one could so determine his future. That's the problem. We are presumptuous that what we intend to happen will actually happen, as if we are in control of it all. In short, I think what James is saying is that our plans should always be tentative. In our mind, in our speech, in our actions, our plans should always be tentative because the future is always uncertain. Let me say that again. Our plans should always be tentative because the future is always uncertain. And so I want to ask you, maybe you are like me in this regard. When the plans that you have for whatever it is that you're doing, when they fall through, how do you react? What's your response are you like me? I get very frustrated. I get very angry. I get very perturbed because I think that I control the future. And if I plan it, it should happen that way. Uh, what about this? When your schedule changes, when your to-do list is not completed at the end of the day, or maybe for you ultra, ultra people, if your to-do list isn't, per, isn't completed in the order that you actually plan to complete it. <laughs> you know what I mean? How do you respond How do you respond? If you are honest, are you living life like tomorrow may not happen? Are you living? Do we actually live? I'm so convinced of this, that I live my life thinking that I control the future, (laughs) that I know what's going to happen and that somehow um, it's a certain thing. James says don't be presumptuous Second he says don't forget who you are Not only does he say don't presume The the second tool here is Don't forget who you are It's connected to what he said Notice the tail end of verse 14 He asks them as he always does Abiding question What is your life? What is your life? Uh, the, the question is, uh, in Greek, it's like, what's the nature of your life? What kind of life do you have? That's the question that he's asking. And then he answers it. For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then van- vanishes, vanquishes. And so what James says is, don't presume. And the reason you shouldn't presume is because don't forget who you are. You're forgetting who you are. So what are we? What is humanity? What is humanity? I mean, this is humbling, and we don't like to... I don't like to think of this. I don't like to hear this. It's humbling, but when you look at it, we are human beings, and we are like a mist. Um, This may seem utterly foreign to you. I, I grew up in Texas, and in Texas, it probably gets cold enough that when you walk outside and you breathe your hot air that, you know, you see the, the steam and the mist. You know what I'm talking about, right? As kids, you, like, play like you're smoking or, or you know, you're like a dragon or whatever, you know, um, that stuff. In Texas, that happens, like, two or three times a year, okay? And so when it gets cold enough to actually, like, see your breath coming out of your lungs, it's so cool. <laughs> so I grew up. It was lovely. And now I'm here and I walk outside and I'm like, oh,
1: Get me inside,
0: you know Uh, But growing up, it was so cool Um, But the thing about that is How long does it last? A second? Two seconds? Maybe, not even that It's here today, gone tomorrow And that's what James says Our life is just like that I mean, we shouldn't presume Because we don't know that we're going to be living this afternoon That's essentially the point that he's making and so do you feel, I mean, this is, this is hard, but it's so important. Are we living our lives like we are invincible? I mean, do we live like we will never die? Do we live like our bodies will never grow old and ache and someday we'll be in the ground? Do we actually think that we are invincible? Do we live like tomorrow is guaranteed? Um, I mean, there are stories that come to mind. And we know from life experience that we can be going about our day and the next day we may be in the hospital on the verge of death. Life is not guaranteed. We are a vapor. And so we don't presume, we don't forget who we are and probably most importantly, we don't forget who God is and that's our third tool. Don't forget who God is, verses 15 and 16. Let's read this together. This is the answer. This is the proper way to plan. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, We will live and do this or that. Then verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Essentially, he says, when we plan like this, we are so arrogant. We are boasting to think that what we plan tomorrow will actually come about. And he says, don't boast, but forget. Don't forget who God is. Notice, if the Lord wills. That is, if God desires this, if our plans are in accordance with God's plans, then it's going to happen. And if our plans are not in accordance with God's plans, guess what, folks? It's not going to happen. That's what James is saying. And so he says the proper heart attitude is to say, if the Lord wills, if it's God's desire, and I hope and pray that my will is in line with his will, then it's going to happen. Because if our will is in line with his will, then it will happen. And if it's not, then it won't. And I think, and maybe you know people like this. And I don't. I don't want to run down these Christians. I think they, in their hearts, it's right and it's good. I mean, they they deeply desire this. But I think some people take this as kind of like a, like a magic, like a magic formula. You know, they say, and so every time they speak about anything future, I'm going to go get a cup of milk from the fridge, if God wills. I'm going to go, you know, take a shower if God wills. You know, I mean, it's just to the extreme. Now, I think it's in there, you know, it's right for them. It's not wrong. It's not sin. I mean, they're genuinely desiring, I think, God's will. But the biblical perspective is this. We see Paul in the New Testament two times. He's talking about his plans. I'm going to go to Rome. I'm going to go visit you. And he says, if the Lord wills. And so he speaks it sometimes when he talks about his plans because he means it. His Life is in God's hands. But on three occasions in the New Testament, Paul is talking about his plans. and He says, I'm going to go here. I'm going to go there. And he doesn't say it. He didn't, he didn't say it at all. So is he like sinning then? No. It's the heart attitude. It's, what we, it's how we view life. It's how we view God. So third, he says, don't, don't forget who God is. If I could sum it up, what James is saying is this means we should plan. We can plan. There's nothing wrong with planning. Planning is good. But what he says is that we must always reserve room for God to change our plans. That's what he says. Always reserve room for God to change our plans. I'm going to share one quick story. We're going to sing uh, a song about Jesus because he's the hero of the story here. Um, about two months ago, maybe two months ago, my, my time is getting away from me. Um, Shelley and I... Um, uh, <laughs> We're hoping uh, to have a little child, and we were about six weeks pregnant, and we found out that we had a miscarriage. Um, some of you knew that, some of you didn't. Um, but that happened to us about two, two months ago, maybe maybe three. And uh, you know that's, that's a tough thing. I mean, many of you have experienced what we have. Uh, it's a really hard thing, because here's the deal. this is how it has shaped our life. We have plans. We want to shape our family in this way. We want our kids to be this far apart. We want to get pregnant when we get pregnant, and we want to have a kid when we want to have a kid. And so we plan and we do everything that we can do, right, that's within our control. But we can't control what God ultimately leads into our life. And so this is our game plan. We wanted to have a child this time and this year, and it didn't happen, if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills. And if the Lord wills, we'll get pregnant again and we'll have a healthy, beautiful child. If the Lord wills, we always leave room for God to change our plans. And so he concludes in verse 17, and essentially he says this, I've I've referenced it before. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. I think what essentially he's saying is... If you're a believer and you know that you shouldn't be speaking evil against your brother, you know you shouldn't be judging him, you know you shouldn't be planning presumptuously, you know these things, if you disregard them, you're sinning. That's basically the point. And so he concludes by saying, if you know what's right, then pursue a life that does it. And so I want to conclude, James says, don't forget who God is. And so in your planning, as you plan, as you think about the future, as you think about your kids, your business, uh, your work, your pleasure, whatever it is. Big stuff, small stuff, daily planning, yearly planning, decade planning. Anyone plan for the decade? Okay, I don't. Maybe you do. Whatever level of planning it is, James essentially says, pray about it, ask for God's wisdom, listen for what God desires, and leave room (laughs) that you could be wrong. So in conclusion, the most distasteful, the most unattractive, one of the most... Stinkiest is that a good word, thing that we see in people is pride. We don't like pride. We notice it. It reeks. It affects, everyone else smells it but the person who's prideful. So maybe this morning you have found yourself much like President Reagan. Maybe you're clapping for yourself. Maybe you've come to realize that you're clapping for yourself like President Reagan. You know, pride is distasteful and it's unattractive. But on the flip side, humility, genuine humility, like James has been talking about, is very winsome. It's very attractive. We love humble. I mean, think about it. You know, someone, someone come to mind, they're just genuinely humble. Don't you love them? I mean, don't you like being around humble people? The most humble person that ever lived is the person by the name of Jesus Christ. He uh, was perfect in every way, and he was the most humble man on the face of this earth. I want to leave, uh, leave us with one passage. We're going to transition and we're going to sing of the humble man. We're going to sing of Jesus in his, hum- in, in his humility. Um, but the good news of the Christian faith is that Jesus was not proud. <laughs> he did not cling to his rights. He did not do what he wanted to do. Uh, he did not, uh, when the Father asked him, go down from heaven, leave my side, take on human flesh, become frail and weak, uh, just like humans are, and live a perfect life, you are, because you're God, and then die in their place for their sins. They have committed heinous sins against us as the Trinity. Would you do this? And Jesus, in humility, said, sign me up. A text in uh, Philippians 2, you may be familiar with it. Have this mind among you, and this is our blessing we're going to sing out. In fact, singers, Come on up right now. You guys, come on up. And as they're coming, I'm going to read this text about the humility of Jesus Christ. And as they're coming, I want to ask you, have you come into a personal relationship with the humble man? Do you know humility personally in Jesus Christ? If you don't, I would venture to say that you will not be humble. (laughs) You, You can't be humble because you have not had the most humble person come to live inside of you and change your life. He says this, have this mind among yourselves, Christians, who is, uh, which is yours in Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped in pride, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. He took on humanity, and being found in human form, that, as if that wasn't enough, he humbled himself again by becoming obedient to the point of death. As if that wasn't enough, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Remember what James said, humble yourself before the Lord and God will what? He will exalt you. It's exactly what he did with Jesus. So if you know him, then stand up and sing of him. And if you don't, accept him in your heart. So let's stand and sing.